Hi, and welcome to the UNC Resident Wellness Podcast. I'm Robert Rowe, a preventive medicine resident at the University of North Carolina and Master of Public Health student at UNC Gillings School of Global Public Health. Today, we're going to talk about self-compassion. Now, I'm not an expert in self-compassion, but fortunately, we have one joining us today. I'd like to welcome Dr. Karen Bluth to the podcast. Dr. Bluth holds a faculty position in the Department of Psychiatry at the UNC School of Medicine and is a fellow at the Frank Porter Graham Child Development Institute, where she is founder of the Frank Porter Graham Mindfulness and Self-Compassion Program for Families. Dr. Bluth has nearly 20 years of teaching experience and over 40 years of experience as a mindfulness practitioner. With a primary focus on the roles that self-compassion and mindfulness play in promoting well-being in youth, Dr. Bluth is also co-creator of the curriculum Mindful Self-Compassion for Teens and the Young Adult Adaptation, Embracing Your Life. She is also author and co-author of several books on mindfulness and self-compassion for teens, but has also done work with adults and pertinent to our discussion, healthcare providers. Dr. Bluth, welcome and thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. For residents, compassion is a pretty familiar word. We are taught to have compassion for our patients starting in medical school, and for many of us, it's one of the main reasons we became physicians in the first place. But what is self-compassion, and how is it different from the compassion for others with which we are probably more familiar? Yeah, so um, it's really not that different. Self-compassion is, uh, we like to say, it's like compassion, but you're just doing a U-turn. So you're taking that compassion that you readily give to others um, and turning it towards yourself. And so um, it doesn't mean you have less compassion for others. In fact, if anything, it means that you have more compassion for others because you're um, refilling your resources when you're compassionate to yourself. So it's not that different. It's just um, turning that compassion towards yourself. And what are some key principles of self-compassion? Yeah, so self-compassion is defined by three different components, um, it's, or it's comprised of three different components. The first one is mindfulness, and mindfulness means in this context, having the awareness um, of what you're feeling when you're feeling it, and particularly having a balanced perspective. So um, you've had a bad day, something has gone wrong, um, you're feeling badly about yourself, uh, the mindfulness piece uh, is acknowledging that, but also that it's not the end of the world. So maintaining this balanced perspective, you know, that this, this, you know, this wasn't my best day, but it's not the end of the world, you know, and I can fix it and, um, and it's not going to last forever. The second component is common humanity and common humanity is the understanding that whatever we're experiencing emotionally, whether it's anxiety or depression or loneliness, sadness, frustration, whatever, that this is common to, to everyone, to all human beings roaming around on this planet, that we all experience these difficult emotions. And that might seem really obvious. And in some ways it is intellectually, cognitively, it's obvious, but, um, when it actually happens to us, when we're the ones who feel like we've messed up, you know, we've made this huge mistake, we tend to forget that other people also have those feelings from time to time and think we're the only ones. 
we feel very isolated. We might feel really alone. Um, so, so the common humanity uh, component of self-compassion is understanding that this is, this is just part of life. You know, this is part of life. And the third component of self-compassion is self-kindness. And self-kindness is taking an active role in doing something kind for yourself when you're struggling, right? When you're having this, um, you know, when you're feeling badly about yourself. So this might be something simple like going for a walk or um, having a phone conversation with a good friend, or it could be just simply saying some kind words to yourself, the kind of words that we would say to a good friend so readily. You know, we readily say nice things to our friends when they're struggling, but we don't often do it for ourselves. A lot of that really resonates with me as a resident, as I've said previously uh, in introductory episodes and in other episodes, and I will continue to say that I, this is my second residency program. I was a surgery resident prior to coming to preventive medicine, and I truly had a sense of isolation despite always being with other people. You know, that that was not a, it was not tangible, it was kind of more internal. Uh, and that's something that that really resonated with, with something that you said. So I certainly haven't really heard a lot about self-compassion in the past, but, you know, as a resident, sometimes we are isolated and we are kind of siloed and maybe it's been around forever and we just haven't known much about it. Is this a new concept or something that it's a bit older? Well, the concept of self-compassion has been around forever. You know, it's been around for thousands of years, but um, in research, um, it's only been around for um, less than 20 years. So the first research on self-compassion was in 2003, and it was um, published by Kristen Neff, who is uh, really the person, the researcher who start, was the pioneer in um, self-compassion uh, work. She uh, was the one who, the, the definition of self-compassion that I just offered, she is the one who um, came up with that. And she's also the one who uh, developed the, the first scale and subsequent scales also on uh, self-compassion. So she's the one who operationalized self-compassion. And so first studies were in 2003. So, um, and since then, you know, I don't know how many there are now, but well over 4,000 studies um, on self-compassion that have shown pretty consistent um, outcomes, uh, showing that those people who are more self-compassionate um, experience less anxiety, depression, stress. Um, most recently, we've, there have been a few studies on burnout, different aspects of burnout. There are several different aspects of burnout, but um, less of that. And also just overall uh, better emotional well-being and mental health. And is self-compassion a learned skill, something you have to practice? Is it a change in one's mindset, some combination of the two, or some other factor I didn't mention? Yeah, well, we all have some self-compassion, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't have gotten this far in life. So we all take care of ourselves and are, um, you know, are kind to ourselves in certain ways. 
but um, some people are naturally kinder or more self-compassionate than others. Um, we have found in one meta-analysis that in general, men are slightly more self-compassionate than women. Um, yet, um, what we do know is that we can learn how to be more self-compassionate. We can grow our own self-compassion, for example. We can cultivate our own self-compassion. And uh, we can do this through a number of different ways, but really the best way is through a self-compassion program, which, uh, you know, we have a number of at this point, the original one, the first one, um, it's called mindful self-compassion and it's a eight week program, two and a half hours a week for eight weeks. There's a retreat in the middle of it. And it was developed by Chris Germer and Kristen Neff. So, uh, Kristen Neff, the person who's, um, who first operationalized self-compassion and Chris Germer, her um, colleague, who is a psychologist at Harvard. Wow. So really the pioneers in the field created these tools to use to, to uh, improve one's self-compassion. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And now there's an organization, the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, which they developed that, um, that is the umbrella organization for really all things that uh, are, you know, for training self-compassion teachers, for offering self-compassion courses, for, uh, we have a lot of um, programs now that come from the original self-compassion program, the original mindful self-compassion program. We have mindful self-compassion for teens, uh, which I created um, along with uh, an, another colleague. And we have empirical research for that um, at this point. And there's self-compassion for healthcare com uh, communities also, uh, which is a shortened version of the original mindful self-compassion program. And that was developed specifically for people in healthcare communities, broadly speaking. And uh, there's a number of studies that have been published now on that curriculum. And there's also, you know, other, I mean, I'm not mentioning all the, all the curricula that we have. There's one for young adults also called Embracing Your Life. And you've been pretty involved in some of these curricula and studies on self-compassion, uh, particularly in training certified nurse assistants or CNAs who work in nursing homes. What are some takeaways from your experiences training highly stressed healthcare professionals? Yeah, so we did a study. We had we um, had an NIH-funded study um, with CNAs, as you mentioned, in nursing homes, and um, it was great. It was just really very <laughs> trying to find the right words here. It was terrific because it, it felt so rewarding. You know, I was one of the instructors, and and it felt so rewarding because the CNAs just ate it up. You know, they were. You know, they felt like this is this is what they really needed. And, you know, some of their comments were things like this is the first program that we've ever had for us. You know, we've had to do all these other programs that are beneficial for the residents, for example. But this is the first thing that is really for us and is what we needed. And um, and yeah, it was we published two articles on that particular study. And um, it was 
it was really rewarding for us as instructors and it was really rewarding for the CNAs also. And um, they picked up a lot of tools. Like uh, one thing that just comes to mind is before they would walk into um, a resident's room, their residents or their patients, um, they would take a moment to just, um, you know, take a deep breath and use one of the tools that we offered before walking into the resident's room. Because of course, you know, they have a very stressful job and, um, you know, you never know when you walk, as they explained to us, you never know when you walk into a resident's room, what's going to be there for you. You know, these are people who are, you know, suffering a lot. And, um, so they're able to kind of, um, give themselves a little bit of, um, whatever it was that they needed in that moment, strength, courage, uh, maybe a little bit of centeredness or peace or whatever, you know, whatever it is that they need in that moment before they walked into the room. And you've also been involved in a similar study where similar training was provided to surgical residents right here at UNC. And I know that the results haven't been published yet, so we're going to stay pretty general. But do you have any takeaways about developing and implementing such a training program at UNC? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I would love to, um, you know, the issue around offering these programs always is funding, right? It's always about money, <laughs> you know? Um, so some of the things that we, we learned a lot from doing, doing this study with surgical residents, we did it for three years. we learned a lot the first year. We made um, adaptations and modifications for the second year. And um, then, you know, a few more modifications for the third year. But we found that it um, that it was, um, you know, as you know, residents uh, struggle also that there's, you know, the workload is tremendous and, you know, not just physically and long hours, but also emotionally. You know, you're dealing with a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, um, sometimes a lot of death and residents, you know, and, and maybe this is true across the board for healthcare professionals aren't supposed to be vulnerable, you know? So, um, so you have to hold it all in yourself, you know, and, and somehow maintain this exterior of being strong and tough while you, you can be, uh, while having to deal with all the, this, this huge load of, um, what can be difficult emotions and certainly physically a really hard job. And what we know is that, you know, the burnout rate is very high, very high among residents and, and, you know, doctors in general. So, and of course this happens when, um, when we work um, really hard without necessarily taking care of ourselves. And sometimes in a system that, you know, needs to be, you know, it has some issues that need that needs to be addressed. So what I've heard from quite a few healthcare folks that um, I have worked with is that, and this is not my personal experience because I don't work directly in a hospital, but what I've heard from people who do work in hospitals is that, um, is that there are systemic problems that need to be addressed. So I just want to 
acknowledge that, you know, that it's not, we're not, you know, I'm not saying that it's the fault of residents or the fault of doctors or nurses or anybody else, but that um, burnout often happens because there are systemic issues that need to be addressed. So that's just another part of it. Certainly. I, I can attest to that. I'm, I'm one of those who agree that there are systemic issues um, and kind of cultural issues that have been in place for quite some time that are ingrained into our daily lives and make things like self-compassion both challenging but also necessary uh, and really important to continue the work that we do so that we can be compassionate um, for others as well. Right. You can't be compassionate for others if you have nothing left to give. If you're worn out, if you're burnt out, if you're, you know, stressed to the max, you, you know, you can't, as um, a colleague of mine often says, you can't pour from an empty cup. You know, you have to take care of yourself so that you have something to give to others. Absolutely. I think just to, you know, make sure that people don't think this is a surgically centric podcast. Um, do you have any thoughts about whether lessons learned to be taken into fu future iterations or next steps involving potentially other departments or other programs moving forward? Well, we do have a well-being program at UNC, um, a, a well-being well initiative that, um, well, there's a program called Taking Care of Our Own, which um, is um, all about this. And, and, and lately, in the last few months, there's been a, uh, a new well-being initiative. So, and I'm part of that, where we meet with different groups from different divisions across the hospital um, to offer these uh, practices and other things and other things that, that people request, you know, um, conversations around burnout and um, stress and um, grief and, you know, lots and lots of different um, issues. So, so that initiative is going on. It's relatively new, but, um, but we're working on it, you know, and uh, we're learning a lot from it and a lot from feedback that we're getting from people as well. So I'm assuming and I'm hopeful that many of our listeners are like me and really want to start practicing self-compassion. What should they do? Where should they start? Well, I think it's always, um, it's always great to start with a program because you're there with other people who are going through the process with you. And so the common humanity aspect um, is right there. You know, you see other people who are um, experiencing the same kinds of things that you are, and they're sharing those. So, so that is enormously, enormously beneficial. And so the way to find out about that is um, the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, and their website is center for msc.org. And there are, um, I mean, as soon as you go to the, their website, you see there's um, programs for healthcare professionals um, through their, it's called SCHC, Self-Compassion for Healthcare Communities. So um, that course is offered as a six week course. It's 
an hour a week for six weeks. That's the shortened version of the longer course. And that's also offered um, through the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. And, um, and there are a lot of other resources there. If you don't want to take a program, um, there are a number of books that are out. There is a workbook um, called Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook by Chris Germer and Kristen Neff, and that's available on Amazon. There is also um, a really great book that just came out last summer called Self-Compassion for Dummies. You know, it's in that um, for dummies line, you know, it's a long line of, of books um, about that, but it's it's a really great book written by Steve Hickman, who's the director of Center for Self, uh, the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. And um, he incorporates lots of uh, great stories and humorous anecdotes and um, there's just a lot of humor. And it's it's um, it's really great, really great book. And he has tons of experience. So that's another book that I would um, that I would recommend. That sounds right at my level. <laughs> and I also know that there will be listeners who may be interested in self-compassion more academically. What advice do you have to those people who want to explore uh, the academic side of self-compassion? Yeah. So um, I think the first thing I think is to see what's out there that has been done already. And Kristen Neff has on her website a really wonderful um, list of research, of all the research that's, um, that's been done on self-compassion. It's really a wonderful resource. Um, it, it's updated, um, I don't know how often she updates it. So there might be some very recent studies that aren't on there, but her website is selfcompassion.org. And there's a tab there that's, um, research tab and under there uh, there's uh, something to click on to take you to all the different studies that have been done and they're categorized and categorized in different ways so i think that's that would be the first first step to start to look at self-compassion research wonderful is there anything else that you are working on uh in the self-compassion realm yeah well besides some teaching um, that I do. I teach adults and I teach teens. Um, my research specifically is around um, or is more with teens. So most recently I've been working with transgender and gender diverse teens and I published a study uh, in December. The first, the first, and now I'm working on another study funded by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention because what we know is that unfortunately trans teens, gender diverse teens have a very high rate of um, suicide um, ideation and suicide attempts. And um, so we are um, in the middle of that study right now and um, we'll be working on that for the next couple of years. So that's my current project. That sounds really interesting. Teens are such an interesting group to work with. And uh, from a resident standpoint, you know, they will, some of them will choose to be residents in, in over the next decade. So them bringing this sort of expertise and experience to something that 
will undoubtedly still be stressful even if we continue to improve the systemic issues throughout residency programs in this country. It will certainly be helpful. Yeah, you know, teens, teens struggle a lot. You know, teens struggle a lot, particularly in the last decade. You know, we know that um, anxiety and depression has gone up tremendously in the last decade. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, it's always been a tough time, right? We, we know that it's always been a tough time, but but it's been it's gotten particularly bad. Um, and you know, of course, the pandemic didn't help. So, yeah. So I, I I feel very lucky and very privileged that I'm able to do this work and and to you know help teens who really who really can benefit. Well, I'm certainly thankful that you were able to join me today. For our listeners, if you want to know more about Dr. Bluth's work, you can go to her website, karenbluth.com, as well as centerformsc.org. She is also on most social media platforms, and we will have her contact information in the show notes. Dr. Bluth, thank you again. Thanks so much. It's great talking with you. And that concludes this episode. This podcast is supported by the University of North Carolina's Office of Graduate Medical Education. It was produced and engineered by Rob Kehoe of Instructional Media Services and edited by Rob and myself. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or ideas for new episodes, you can find me at Robert A.A. Rowe on Twitter or Robert Rowe MD on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Join us next time when we will continue the conversation. Until then, take care.